The story of the Ulster Volunteer Force's dramatic 1914 gun-running operation at the height of the Third Home Rule Crisis is one that has often been told. Masterminded by the maverick unionist Fred Crawford, born in 1861 and educated at Methodist College in Belfast, he became involved in militant unionist groups in around 1892 when he joined the Ulster Loyalist Union. The following year, and during the second Home Rule Crisis, Crawford put forward a proposal to Lord Ranfurly, himself a staunch Unionist, to kidnap the British Prime Minister William Gladstone, the man who claimed it was his mission to pacify Ireland with Home Rule. With solutions like this for the Home Rule situation in Ireland, you'd be forgiven for thinking that Fred Crawford was a bit of a madman. In 1912 then, when almost half a million people signed the Ulster Covenant, Fred Crawford claimed to have signed the solemn pledge against Home Rule in his own blood. The legend of the blood signature began with the man himself. In a handwritten note on his personal copy of the Covenant Oath that read, I signed at 3.45 in Belfast City Hall in my own blood. His story went unchallenged for a century until 2012 when a scientific test carried out on the blood signature by Dr Alistair Ruffell at Queen's University Belfast found no evidence to support his claim. Quote, I'm 90% sure that this isn't blood, but there is that margin of error as this material has been uncontrolled for a hundred years, said Dr Ruffell. In order to carry out the test, a small quantity of a substance called luminol was injected into the signature. Luminol is commonly used in forensic examinations and works by reacting with the iron in the blood's haemoglobin to produce a blue-white glow. It would have been entirely in keeping with Crawford's beliefs to symbolically spill his blood for Ulster. And this is perhaps the reason his claim remained unchallenged for a century. The story absolutely fits his character. At the time, Ulster Unionist Party MLA and current Health Minister Robin Swan was unconvinced by the results of the test. He said, I'm confident enough that the 10% is enough for me to say that Fred Crawford signed the Ulster Covenant in his blood. Swan was bizarrely happy enough to go with those rather slim odds. Fred Crawford was for many years militant in his outlook and had been procuring weapons for Ulster long before the Third Home Rule Crisis, and so it should come as no surprise that he was credited by Wilfred Spender as, quote, perhaps the first man to appreciate the necessity of arming the Ulster Volunteers. Crawford's appreciation of the necessity for UVF arms was predicated plainly and simply on defeating the Home Rule Bill. He said, If I succeed, then Ulster will be free forever from home rule. No government could coerce her with the arms and ammunition that I shall bring in. And bring them in he did, a mix of 20,000 Austrian and German rifles along with ammunition. The transaction had been arranged in Germany only a matter of months before the outbreak of the First World War, which incidentally Fred Crawford believed he was solely responsible for. Again, you'd be forgiven for thinking that he was mad. What is less well known about the UVF's gun-running story, however, is the fate of the man who provided the weapons. The Chief Secretary's office at Dublin Castle estimated that around 25,000 weapons were already in the hands of the Ulster Volunteer Force in March 1914, one month before the huge German consignment arrived. Crawford was behind the majority of it. He had been bringing weapons into the country from as early as 1910 and from a variety of sources. 
In November 1910, the Ulster Unionist Council held its annual meeting in Rosemary Hall when Thomas Andrews moved the resolution, seconded by Crawford, in which they pledged to take all and any measure necessary to oppose Home Rule, even by armed resistance if required. These were not the exact words of the resolution, but it should give you an idea of the spirit of this resolution from 1910. Crawford takes up the story. I immediately commenced to look out how I could get arms and ammunition at a reasonable price, but when I inquired in England, I found that all dealers there were too dear and could not offer any quantity of either. Others flatly refused to quote for delivery to Ulster, so I put an advertisement in six continental papers asking for tenders for the supply of 10,000 rifles and 2 million rounds of ammunition. I got in touch with a Berlin firm called Gatschduk about the spring of 1911, and the Ulster Unionist Council gave me £1,000 to buy rifles. The Italian Vitelli rifles at this time, with a hundred rounds of ammunition, cost something like five shillings, with bayonets complete. We ordered a thousand from the firm to arrive in early spring, and Colonel McCammond had paid a visit to them. The agreement with the Berlin firm in 1911 turned into a dispute when the 1,000 rifles that Crawford had ordered failed to appear after the money had been transferred. Eventually, he decided to try another option, this time in Hamburg in Germany, which he visited in person. The Hamburg firm was Benny Spiro, run by a man called Bruno Spiro. So who was this man Bruno Spiro, and what became of him? Bruno Spiro was born on the 24th of February 1875, and he resided in Hamburg in Germany. Spiro was the sole proprietor of the firm Benny Spiro, founded in 1864 by his father Benny. Public adverts show that the company's business was import, export, iron, steel, machinery automobiles and military equipment. German archive records indicate that Bruno Spiro sold machine guns, rifles, pistols and ammunition to groups in Czechoslovakia and Palestine and that he had carried out business in Hamburg, Berlin and Paris. What the German archives don't tell us about is Spiro's role in supplying weapons to Ireland. For that we must turn our attention back to Fred Crawford. Crawford approached Spiro as a potential candidate to replace the unreliable Berlin firm. He said, I then called on Spiro and though he is a Jew, I was struck with the man's apparent honesty and instinctively trusted him as much as I suspected the other. On my return I reported that the Berlin man was a rogue and that the other man was, I believed, all right and recommended a second thousand rifles to be bought from Spiro. End of quote. Fred Crawford's casual anti-Semitism here is striking, but sadly it was all too common at the time. From that moment on, though, Bruno Spiro became the key man who would get Fred Crawford the weapons that he so craved for the Ulster Volunteers. Fast forward to the 3rd of July 1936 then. Bruno Spiro was arrested in Hamburg by the Gestapo and charged with what were described as, quote, serious allegations. He was taken to the notorious Fuhlsbüttel concentration camp in Hamburg. At this point, I'm slightly out of my depth when it comes to Nazi German history and the important details surrounding the treatment of Jews under the Nazi regime. And so I've called upon a friend and a colleague to help me fill in some of the important gaps in this history. Elise Bath is from the Wiener Holocaust Library in London and I asked her first of all to give me some context on the Fuhlsbüttel camp in Hamburg. 
My name is Elise Bath. I work at the Wiener Holocaust Library in London. Uh, the Wiener Holocaust Library is one of the world's oldest institutions dedicated to researching and collecting information about the Holocaust. And we are um, one of the UK's leading archives and most extensive archives uh, on topics around the Holocaust and other genocides, Jewish life before and after the Holocaust. I work um, on an archive called the International Tracing Service Digital Archive, which holds over 30 million documents connected with the experiences of about 17.5 million people affected by Nazi persecution. Uh, this archive contains material from the concentration camps, death books, prison records, that sort of thing, but it also contains a lot of material from the post-war period, so from refugee camps, emigration lists, applications for compensation and things like that. We use it um, often to research the experiences of individual victims of Nazi persecution, usually on behalf of their families and loved ones. So uh, Fuhlsbudel was a concentration camp that was officially opened on 4th September 1933 as part of a large prison complex in North Hamburg. It wasn't hidden away at all, uh, very much in the, the city centre. And its initial function was to persecute and suppress political opponents of the Nazi regime. So you're talking about socialists, communists, that sort of people, while also acting as a tool of terror to intimidate the general public. From 1934, Jehovah's Witnesses were also incarcerated there. And after the Nuremberg Laws came into play from September 35, Jews were also incarcerated in this place. By this point, anyone who was considered asocial or harmful to the folk could also be held in sites like this. So that would in include vagrants, sex workers, beggars, gay people. Um, firstly, it was just men who were held there, but from 1934, there were women incarcerated there as well. Terror was a, a key part of Fool's Brutal Life. So prisoners were regularly beaten and torture was used not just as part of interrogations, but just to entertain the guards. So there's many reports of the guards roaming around at night, often drunk, attacking prisoners just for the, for the sake of it. Um, there was a man named Paul Ellishusen, who was the camp commandant at first. Um, he was alcoholic, very brutal, and he was replaced in 1934 by Johannes Horder. Um, Horder supposedly prohibited the arbitrary beatings carried out by guards, but he claimed the right to do so himself. Um, and his main targets for beatings and abuse were Jews, gay people, sex workers, and people who were classified at the time as transvestites. So most of the guards were very young not very well educated, many were fanatical supporters of the Nazi regime and had previous convictions for participating in violent street battles in the Weimar Republic. So violence and terror were key parts of life in Fool's Brutal. As well as arms smuggling, Bruno Sparrow was strongly suspected to have shifted abroad contracts for the supply of weapons to the detriment of the German economy. The Gestapo also discovered evidence that Sparrow had sold foreign-held securities, usually in the form of equity and debt, including unnamed securities which were sold for over 33,000 Swiss francs, and which had been held in an account that Bruno Sparrow had at a bank in Lucerne in Switzerland. German archival records also indicate that these sales took place beginning in June 1933, continued throughout 1934, and that Bruno Sparrow had used the proceeds for his own business in Switzerland rather than repatriate the proceeds from the security sales to Germany as was required by German law. Sparrow contested the charges against him. However, it was not only the alleged economic crimes that formed the basis of the Gestapo's case against Spyro. German Jews had by this time been declared as enemies of the state, and the Gestapo, directed by the SS, were responsible for making their lives as difficult as possible. 
For three months then, the Gestapo carried out an intensive interrogation of Spiro in the hope of uncovering a network of what they called international Jewish arms smugglers. The interrogation was unsuccessful though, and as such, a German court ruled that the state could not seize his German bank accounts because his wife, who had inherited the accounts, was not implicated in the business dealings. This was much to the frustration of the Gestapo. It's worth noting that even though Nazi persecution of the Jews in Germany was an unquestionable reality by 1936, their treatment of Spiro up to this point seems to suggest that some effort at least was made to be seen to be pursuing justice. Had Spiro been arrested after the passage of further anti-Semitic laws in 1938, his business and assets would have been seized with greater ease, with much less opportunity to answer a case. I thought it might be worth asking Elise Bath, though, about the interrogation and torture methods that Bruno Spiro might have experienced at Fulsbudel camp. So there will likely have been a range of torture methods used on Bruno and other people held in Fulsbudel, as well as things like solitary confinement. There will also have been violence, just as a matter of course. So they're talking about beatings and floggings. There are also reports of um, rubber truncheons, chair legs and steel rods being used. And the word that's given um, about how these items were used is to humiliate prisoners. So if we think about the coded language used at the time, it is distinctly possible that this uh, refers to sexual torture. Prisoners were often sort of put in irons with their hands and feet chained behind the back and left like that for the days at a time, up to a week. Um, they're often hanged from an iron pole at two metres above the ground for days at a time by their hands. Um, so as well as all of this really very brutal physical violence, um, there'll also have been a huge amount of verbal abuse and the psychological terror of waiting for the torture to begin should also not be underestimated. Um, a guy called Dr. Fritz Solnitz, who was an active anti-fascist and Jew, he managed to actually write notes on cigarette papers that he hid in, in his watch while he was in Fulsbrudel. And he wrote about the torture that he'd endured for days before his violent death there in September 33. And he writes at one point, and I quote, I can hear flogging and screams every day. How long will it take till it's my turn again? End quote. So we may think a lot about physical violence, but I think the psychological impact um, of waiting was also uh, very impactful on, on the people incarcerated there. On the 29th of September 1936, Bruno Spiro allegedly committed suicide in a protective custody cell at the Fulsbudel camp in Hamburg. On the face of it, Spiro's death caused great complications for the Gestapo in their pursuit of prosecutions in the case. However, we must be mindful of the Nazis' track record when it comes to recorded cases of suicide in concentration camps. I asked Elise Bath for her opinion on this situation. Um, so basically, don't trust Nazi records. Um, we know that the Nazis had zero compunctions about lying as to the cause of death. So, for example, in relation to those people murdered in the T4 Aktion, where Nazis and their collaborators murdered people that they considered to be sort of mentally deficient, and to use their term, the relatives of these people who were murdered were told as a matter of course that their loved one had died of illness. So they're very happy to lie about people that they've murdered. We've also got loads of testimonies from survivors and from perpetrators that uh, report on SS guards in concentration camps killing prisoners and giving their deaths of suicide, or pretending that they were um, auf der Flucht erschossen, so shot to death while trying to escape. There's many incidents where we know that the um, Nazis have lied about causes of death. Regarding Bruno's death, um, you know, if we think about the torch methods that I talked about earlier that were common in Fool's Brutal, it's easy that you could see 
how someone will be murdered either deliberately or unintentionally during torture. But you can also see why someone imprisoned in that scenario might very well want to end their sufferings through suicide. So he's been in prison there for what, three months is it at this point? Um, so from the information that I've, from the documents I've looked at, I can't be sure either way, I'm afraid. A poignant Stolperstein memorial stone for Bruno Spiro in Heimhuderstrasse suggests that he was in fact immorted, murdered, though no evidence has been provided to support this claim. This is in contrast to the Stolperstein stone for Jenny Lohengard in the same street as Spiro who had been recorded as a suicide, which suggests that the immorted entry for Spiro was made consciously and presumably with good reason at some point. These small brass plaques in the pavement in front of houses of which the mostly Jewish residents were persecuted or murdered by the Nazis mention the name, date of birth and place, mostly a concentration camp, and date of death. Today, more than 5,000 stones in the streets of Hamburg draw attention to its persecuted citizens. I asked Elise Bath to give me a bit of background on the Stolperstein Memorial Stones. Stolpersteine are a form of memorial for individual victims of Nazi persecution. They were created by an artist named Gunther Demnig in the 1990s, and he's been installing them at more than 1,200 towns and cities across Europe and Russia since then. So far, he's installed more than 70,000 such plaques. The word Stolpersteine translates as stumbling stones. They are um, commemorative brass plaques, but they're quite small. They're only a few inches square, and they're typically installed in the ground, like slightly raised tiles. Um, most often they're situated in front of the last place a victim lived by choice, but they can also be in front of a person's school, university, synagogue and so on, and they tend to include the victim's name, date of birth and then brief details of their persecution, so maybe a, a date of deportation or a date of, of murder. We'll probably never know the exact fate of the man who supplied weapons to the Ulster Volunteer Force during the Third Home Rule Crisis, but what we can say for certain is that Bruno Sparrow suffered his premature death as a result of Nazi persecution. Should he be regarded as a victim of the Holocaust though? Well, in 2008, a Holocaust victim asset litigation case awarded over £125,000 to the Spiro family from a dormant Swiss bank account, which had been used by Bruno Spiro for various transactions. These were assets that the Nazis had unsuccessfully tried to confiscate during Spiro's imprisonment. However, when discussing this with Elise, she had some really interesting observations on what can or cannot be considered as the precise start and end dates of what we know today as the Holocaust. So in terms of whether we can regard Bruno Spiro as a, as a Holocaust victim, he's certainly a victim of Nazi persecution. Um, but we have to think about what we're considering and classifying as the Holocaust. Um, regarding the start dates of the Holocaust, it is a bit tricky. Um, different people and different institutions take different dates as the start point. So the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum has as its definition of the Holocaust, and I quote, um, the systematic state-sponsored persecution and murder of six million Jews by the Nazi regime and its collaborators between 1933 and 1945 across Europe and North Africa, end quote. So they're taking the date at which the Nazis came to power as the beginning of the Holocaust. Some take the start of Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of the Soviet Union in June 1941, as the beginning of the Holocaust proper, while others pin it around the Wannsee Conference in early 42. That was a conference attended by 15 high-ranking Nazi party and German government officials, where they discussed the implementation of the Endlosung der Judenfrage, 
which is the final solution of the Jewish question, which was explicitly genocidal in its aims and objectives. And I think for me, from 1941 onwards, there's a real development in genocidal actions and intention. Um, so this is following the invasion of the Soviet Union. You have whole communities being murdered by Einsatzgruppen death squads. Um, you've got autumn 1941, Aktion Reinhardt, which was an operation of the planned deportation of around 2 million Jews living in Eastern Europe to extermination camps. Um, the people carrying out Operation Reinhardt murdered something like 1.7 million Jews. Now, this is a level of determined and effective genocide that isn't something you really see to that scale before 1941. But I do want to make it very clear. I'm absolutely not saying that the Nazis and their collaborators didn't carry out atrocities before 1941 or that Jewish people weren't murdered or mistreated until they died or before that date or that other victim groups weren't targeted before this date. But I do think there is a shift in Nazi policy, certainly in Nazi practices, and also a shift in who is being targeted. And I know this seems very pedantic, but there are a number of people out there, um, Holocaust revisionists and deniers, who will take any slight inaccuracy in what you're saying to try and pull down everything you've said and try to invalidate historical facts about the Holocaust or invalidate you as a researcher. So in terms of Bruno Spiro, is he a Holocaust victim? I mean, he's absolutely a victim of Nazi persecution and 100% who will certainly have been brutally interrogated and his mistreatment will have been exacerbated by the fact that he was Jewish and when it comes down to it he died in Nazi custody. Those are all established facts. Um, the question of whether he's a holocaust victim is a little more complicated and I know this level of pedantry may seem um, unnecessary or, or sort of graceless even but, but there are bad faith operators out there who will try to pull down established histories about the holocaust using any small details that they can. So I think it is important to openly reflect on these details, which might be seen as trivial um, or sort of too pedantic. Uh, so I would say Bruno died as a result of Nazi persecution. It's accurate. It, it sort of en encompasses the issue of, is it suicide or is it murder? Um, and it also sort of avoids the issue of when the Holocaust proper began. So I would say he died as a result of Nazi persecution. Thank you as ever for tuning in to this edition of the Historical Belfast podcast. Don't forget that you can support the podcast on patreon.com. Your support there is very much valued and appreciated. Also, please continue to share the episodes on your social media and with like-minded friends. I also want to flag up a couple of walking tours that are coming up at the end of uh, August. On Sunday, the 28th of August, I'll be at Belfast City Cemetery for a walking tour. There are still some tickets available for that at historicalbelfast.com. And then on Monday, the 29th of August, Bank Holiday Monday, my last public walking tour of the year, um, you can find me in East Belfast where I'll be doing a First World War historical walking tour again. Tickets are available for that on historicalbelfast.com.